With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening. Welcome to Sugar and Silk, brought to you in conjunction with Ace Podcast Nation. My name is Ben Doughty. My name is Michael Silkalajide. But you could have guessed. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you know, we kind of set that one up with the intro, really. Um, It's good to have you back, Michael. It has been two weeks. It feels like an age since we last, you know, got your erudite insights on this show. Without you, it doesn't really work, the whole concept with no silk, I've got to say. Is that erudite, is that erudite with the E-R-R-O-R? Like erudite? Um, error first? I, so it, there's prob- yeah, there's probably some American product or something that that relates to, um, which the UK <laughs> audience might not understand. But yeah, I mean, in, in the, um, regardless... I missed that one, right? <laughs> yeah, Um Regardless of that, um, it wasn't a huge weekend of boxing. We did have the um, vacant WBC junior. They called it a junior lightweight title fight on one of their websites, which I thought had an old school charm. Usually they say super featherweight these days. But in any case, Ray Vargas lost for the first time, um, having beaten his previous 36 opponents Mm -hmm. to Oshaki Foster in San Antonio, Texas. Um, I've got to be honest with you, I only saw highlights, but... Mm -hmm. um, there was also you know, the show at Wembley last night, Zach Chelly beat Anthony Sims Jr. Mm-hmm. And there's a kid called Adam Azim I wanted you to have a look at. A lot of people are raving about He has the kind of touch of Nassim Hamid, young Nassim Hamid about him. Mm-hmm. A lot of ability. I know you'd like him. Great boxing IQ. Uh-huh. Does a lot does a lot of does a lot of good things. Um yeah. but I believe you couldn't watch that either. So yeah, you yeah, had your yeah. own idea about what direction yeah. you wanted to go in with the show tonight, Michael. You know, I really wanted to discuss your book uh, with Mike Ayala that you did, Miguel Ayala, uh, on Tony Ayala. I think that's so interesting and intriguing. And I want to ask you questions, you know, specifically that we're going to get to before, even before <coughs> we talk on that. I think that I'm really interested and intrigued in that story. Um, did we talk about copy, you know, the the a copy? Forgive me as I try to orient it because the camera is backwards. I'm yeah, not, yeah, yeah, I see it. This is the copy, right? The first yeah, copy. I, 
this is how it goes with self-publishing. I always order one copy before I order a bunch of copies because I want to see that they didn't mess it up. Yeah, and yeah, I like yeah. It. It's kind of thick, as you can see, Michael. I mean, it's it's 300 pages. The print is yeah. quite large, which yeah. is one of the reasons why it's 300 pages. But uh, this is this is a labour of love for me. I wanted. I, I I know you're aware. I was talking about this before I'd written any books. And I always had this kind of obsession. I sometimes refer to it as a guilty obsession with the Ayala story and Mr. Yeah, I actually wanted to find out exactly why you chose Tony Ayala for your story. Well, I just had this fascination, as I say, Michael, since the earliest days. I read about him. I don't see, I was tuned in from 1980 onwards, certainly uh, reading Boxing News and whatnot. But I don't really remember hearing much or reading much about him, even in the British press until he fell off that mantle with that the brutal sexual assault he committed on new year's eve 1982 it was more i was more aware of him immediately retrospectively when people were saying that he could have been an era defining fighter or, or he could have been in the loop with the with the so-called four kings I, when i say so-called i don't mean that they're not you know i don't mean to deprive him of any majesty but you know hagler leonard hearns duran and mm -hmm. um I always remember, so I was 13 when I read about what had happened and mm -hmm. how he was going to prison for a very long time. So before, before you even go there, though, uh, uh, before you even go there, though, Sugar, let me ask you, like, you have the Scarface-ish reference on the book cover, right? I mean, I love yeah. that. That's really cool. Yeah. Was that part of his personality? Like, was that, uh, would, uh, from what you know, from talking to Miguel and just his surroundings and everything, was he Scarface-ish, or did it just seem like like his life, his public life, seemed to be that perspective? Like, on the inside, was it like that? The, there was no intended, particular intended comparison to Tony Montana, uh, you <laughs> know, the lead uh, character in Scarface, although you had the drugs, more, more heroin than cocaine, although he was familiar with cocaine as well, and was said to have been high on cocaine and, and heroin, along with being under the influence of alcohol on oh, the night. Shit. Wow. That he commi he committed stuff. the... You know the most the most notorious offence, but no. To be honest, I was just looking at cover designs, and I, that was one option. It threw to me this this app that I've got, which you know it converts photographs in a way that you might find aesthetically pleasing and, my, and artistic. And I saw that one. It was when I put the red writing on it that I saw. I saw. I thought, ah, Scarface. And I, I said yeah, to yeah. my think, and he said, "Let's do it. I like it. Let's run with it." But but you know, no, I don't. I wasn't really comparing him to the Tony Montana as such with that. Okay, so let me ask you, like, Ayala was, Tony Ayala was a legend without beating a legendary name on his resume, yeah. right? So what do you think attracted the boxing world to him? And do you think it's the same thing that attracted you to write the story about him? I think so, yeah. I think Lester Bedford, who promoted most of his comeback fights circa 1999, mm -hmm. certainly up until his loss to Yuri Boy Campas in 2000 one he said the only fighter i could compare him to is was a young mike tyson he said he was feral wicked vicious he said you just knew when tony ayala jr got in the ring you were going to see something dramatic and frenzied and he said and it was he said it's hard to explain to people who weren't there watching it play out in real time in san antonio but he said that the spurs the basketball team were not that big back then not not as, as much as they are today he said, so boxing really was the major sport in San Antonio in the, in the 70s and 80s. And he said that, and the one homegrown fighter that really created that kind of, um, 
you know, bare pit excitement was Tony Ayala Jr. He said you knew mm. you were going to see, invariably you're going to see someone get knocked out and you were going to see a kind of un, unbridled kind of violence. You know, people, a lot of people, some of the mystique, and I remember this as a kid, obviously the fact he'd done what he did and committed a knife point rape <laughs> when he was on top of the world and had already signed to fight David Moore for the WBA junior middleweight title for 750 grand, that was incomprehensible and hence fascinating to me. But when I saw was, him, do you think that was an out? Do you think that was an out for him? Do you think that he thought oh, the pressure he deliberately, he del deliberately self-destructed and fucked up? Yeah. Because he didn't, couldn't handle the pressure. Do you know what, Michael? Some people believe that they were raised with a lot of pressure from their, you know, draconian father. Mm -hmm. They were they never had a choice to be boxers. Mike Ayala says Mike Ayala loves boxing like you and I do, and he won't miss a fight no matter what it is of any magnitude. Um, and he will talk boxing all day long like we will, and he lives it. But he says he never had a choice to be a boxer. He was being trained from the age of five in the front room with his, his dad's hands for mitts. Mm. And he said that they, they it wasn't something they were consulted about or asked if they wanted to be boxers. And what, what he said at the end of it, of the, we spent a lot of time talking that week I spent in San Antonio. And it was an emotional time. It was a, it was kind of like hard, tough therapy sessions to a degree for, yeah. for Mike. I can tell that. And he is an emotional, lovely guy. And he said, yeah. you know what? It was quite late one night. We were sitting around the kitchen table. And he said, I figured what it is, you know, the central message. I, I'm glad I figured out. He said, Tony didn't want a box. He said, Tony didn't want a box. But mm. some people, including Tony Padilla, who was the old school promoter who promoted most of his early fights before the Dubas got hold of him in, mm. in, the, in the 80s, he said um, he does these things to get back at his father. That, when he was getting in trouble beforehand, because it wasn't just the, the, the notorious rape on the night of, uh, you know, New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty-two. Stroke New Year's Day, nineteen eighty-three. He was, he was convicted. He was arrested for a very brutal sexual assault when he was fifteen years old, in the restroom of the Mission Drive-In Theater in San Antonio. Oh, wow. when he so randomly that was the first time. Okay, well, he randomly attacked what is described as an eighteen-year-old co-ed who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. She may have spurned his drunken advances. Nobody knows. It was Sammy Ayala, Tony Junior. And another friend from the neighborhood, they were in, watching a movie in the car like you do at a drive-in. I mean, it's more of a kind of an antiquated American thing. We never really had them to be in England, to be honest with you. But yeah. he went, they were drinking, you know, whatever. He's 15 years old, already a prodigy in boxing terms. And he went to the restroom. And then when right. he didn't come back in qu for quite a long time, they went to look for him. And they saw him getting arrested uh, and sirens and police wow. everywhere. And that's what he did. Now, he was very lucky to get 10 years probation. And he got it, two reasons. One because of the golden future he was presumed to have, and because they paid the girl $40,000 by way of restitution, so yeah. she didn't pursue a civil case, and she spoke on his behalf in court that she thought he was genuinely sorry and remorseful, and she yeah. didn't want a vengeful kind of punitive sentence, and yeah. he got 10 years probation. So wow. what, he also, he was now on to find... He was 15 then, or 14? What did you say, 15? He was 15. Wow. Um, it was tw December 23rd, 1978. Mm -hmm. Um could he, could he have represented the USA in amateur as an amateur? He was a he was a, a vaunted amateur fighter, wasn't he? He was. He won two consecutive Junior Olympics. He won the National Golden Gloves in 1979, and he beat a, a huge guy called Lamont Kirkland, who had beat who had fought Michael Spinks. Yeah. I don't know if he beat Michael Spinks, but he, he he competed with the likes of Michael Spinks in national finals before that. Um, you know, so the the Olympic situation, he was definitely in the upper echelons for that pick, for that berth at uh, 156 pounds. That was the junior middleweight limit in the amateurs. Yeah. And he, uh, James Shuler ended up getting the Olympic, the non-existent Olympic place in the end. 
Ayala withdrew from the race when it became increasingly clear that America weren't going to go to Moscow anyhow. And he was also, he didn't get sentenced for the emission driving theatre assault until 1980, before the Olympics. And his attorney, Alan Brown, said he is very much fancied to go to the Olympics, but we don't know how the Olympic Committee will react to his sentencing or his, his conviction or, you know, this situation and publicity. So they, they were they were asking for leniency on that account too. And he got leniency. Ten years probation was very lenient, but he, but he didn't go to the Olympics ultimately because I think they could see which way things were going. And he decided to turn pro in any case in 1980 before the Olympic Games took place. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I do remember that. Um, I do remember that slightly. Like I followed from Canada, I followed some of the amateurs and, and heard some names batted around. In fact, I think in the back of the magazines, they used to have like uh, results of amateur championships. And yeah, stuff like that do you well. know what? That's where I first read about Mike Tyson in the small print pages at the back of yes. Ring Magazine. They yes. were talking about um, they were talking about Henry Tillman um, being the likely representative of heavyweight, but they said Tyson, mm-hmm. Mike Tyson, who was seventeen at the time, might would still get a chance to topple him in the box offs. Mm-hmm. And they said Tyson is an absolute dynamo, and we hope here we hope he, he achieves that and goes to to you know represents the US and the LA instead of Tillman, you know. But you know how that played out. Yeah, yeah. So so let me continue. What. What made you again? What made you take up the Ayala story? Like, what was it about? Was it the Ayala dynamic? Was it just this? You know, the fact that he was so uh, such a promising talent, and then it just the bottom dropped out. Rare to, I mean, he was as as talented as many fighters are out there, but he's so talented to see him just the bottom just drop out on his career like that was really kind of stunning. It was. Yeah. And I had that fascination with him, but to be honest with you, when I was 13 years old, I was fascinated by the idea he committed the crime that he did in conjunction with the fact that he'd spat on a fallen opponent. Now I never saw that footage. I, for remember that. I just read about him spitting on uh, Jose Luis Baltazar uh-huh. um, when he was on the deck. And I also yeah. uh, was fascinated by his claim to have shot up heroin before three of his fights, he said, I just, a few times I walked into the ring high on drugs and knocked some guy out. And I just thought the whole, I don't know, it, it exerted a deep fascination on me for many years. And I wanted to know more about the story. And did Miguel know this about his brother? I mean, obviously he Mike, knew, the, Mike, so. Mike knew, Mike, Mike knew that Tony was into heroin because he was into heroin himself, you know. Um, heroin, my, sorry, Tony had started mainlining heroin at the age of 12. You know, so which is pretty dysfunctional. Yeah. And Mike knows the guy who he believes gave it to him on the first occasion. And that's one of the reasons why Mike shot this particular fella uh several years later on Christmas Day yeah. nineteen seventy seven. It would have been Christmas Day nineteen seventy seven, Mike Ayala shot this uh fellow professional fighter called Gilbert El Machete Galvan. Yeah. Woodlawn Lake Park on Christmas Day. You know, it was this was the Ayala's Christmas in particular seemed to be a flashpoint for them. That you know, the enforced idleness of the holiday season was not was not good for them. You know, right. and Mike, but Mike, the reason why I shot this fella was because the guy was going round. But I probably shouldn't give too many details of the book away, should I? But the guy, yeah, was yeah, going, yeah I was going to say don't go too far. But <laughs> the guy, the, well, I won't say the other reasons. But one of the reasons was because he believes that this guy gave Tony heroin when the kid was only twelve, and and that was one of Mike's yeah. resentments against him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and the father again, not giving away too many details of the book, but Tony Senior, uh, 
he seemed to, you know, be that domineering father, the one who's very aggressive and tells the yeah. kids what to do and puts the fear of God in him. And he rules by fear instead of by like intellect. Yes. Did he like when he found this out, because he must have known his sons were on drugs or heroin or cocaine. No, but or he didn't know. This is the interesting thing, Michael. He didn't know because and I said <clears> that as streetwise as he was in other ways. He knew nothing of the drug scene. Often parents don't. That's the one thing that it's a generational thing. And well, I, I think, think they don't want to know. I think they know, yes. but they don't want to know. They don't want to realize it. Yeah, you might look the other way. I've seen that syndrome many times as well, where they, they, they're just willfully ignorant and they look the other way. Yeah. But the other thing is heroin is not as radically affecting as it's... I mean, it's a big, bad, you know, narcotic drug that you should go nowhere near, and it's filthy and sordid. It's not glamorous and sexy like cocaine, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's heroin is has got a bad rap from day. So the thing about heroin, and I'm a... As you know, I, I'm a former heroin addict myself many years ago. Mm -hmm. Um and the thing about it is it's a lot more functional than people realize you wouldn't notice there's lots of people who didn't notice that i was on the influence of, of smack when i was doing a number of things which i wish i could get away with you'll see stockbrokers who might be high on heroin who might have shot up in the toilets uh, earlier on but they can still you know it's a, functional drug. It's, a, it, it's a very functional drug and you know what when you get really into it and you and you get in really on the down the slippery slope you're more radically affected by its withdrawal than you are by the actual you know uh, by the actual taking of the drug because it yeah. tends to keep you on an even keel. Mike Ayala certainly said, I didn't, he said he didn't really see it as something to get high on. He said it made him feel normal because he was a very nervous kid, very jittery. He said he found it hard to stand still in one place, you know, right. a lot of the time and to relax and, and to articulate himself. And heroin calmed him down and put everything on a channel that he could function in, you know, and that, that is quite common. So some of the time, because of the hype around heroin, and, and, the, and, the, and the reprehensible reputation it has. A lot of people don't realise you could get away with it for people who don't. One of the biggest signs is, it's almost comical I'm saying this, but in shades, um, is what someone's pinned in the, you know, their eyes, are very, their pupils are dilated and very small. We call it pinned. Yeah. Yeah, you know, oh, so, you, yeah. so I could tell he was pinned, bruv, you know what yeah. I mean? So the reason I'm wearing these, by the way, is because they are glasses, <laughs> normal glasses, and I broke the other ones the other day. So, so I can read comments and, and, and things like that. I'm wearing these shades. Not for any other reason, you know, subterfuge, you know. But. Okay, okay. I was, we, we took the circuitous route to that, but... Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I was going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, after you wrote this book, and I'm going to read it, and a lot of people are going to read it, and, you know, hopefully just... I hope it sells worldwide. Um, do we come closer to understanding the mystery of Tony Ayala? I think so. I really believe so. It's not because sometimes you get books which purport to do that in whatever in whatever context they've been written, right? And mm -hmm. and the reader finishes none the wiser and no conclusion has really been made. Yeah. I don't believe that's the case in this. I think we have come closer to a, to a human understanding of why the stuff that happened happened. And that was Michael was very reluctant to get involved with this sure. and very apprehensive initially. Yes. And said the only reason he did it, and and Mike pulled out pulled out at least half a dozen times and said to me, sorry, I can't do this. I've got to let yeah. it die. I've got to let it lie. And yeah. then he would come back to me a day or two later or even an hour or two later and say, listen, man, I'm sorry. I'm with you all the way. Yeah. But he said, I didn't want to do this, but you have won me over. And he oh, said, wow. I'm just, he said, I've been burned so many times. I just don't think you're going to do that. And yeah. I, I know he knows now that I didn't do that. That's We're true. very, Mike and I are very close at this point. The, the, the yeah. relationship is more important than the book. Yeah. But he, but he likes it. He, 
when it when I sent him the epilogue and said, I think I've done it, Mike, I think this is it. And you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've I think we've made it. Mm-hmm. And he called me back and he said, You wrote a masterpiece, you know, and he said, And thank yeah. you. The, the, yeah. the important thing to him was it finished on a positive note. You mm-hmm. might wonder how that's possible with, with the, you know, the the recidivist sex offender who died of a heroin overdose in the gym. Mm-hmm. But the epilogue talks about the contrast between two brothers whose story have been detailed, you know, yeah. running parallel to each other throughout mm-hmm. the book. And it talks about how one ended tragically with no resolution and never found any peace. And the other one has a wonderful life today and has come out the other side. And that mm-hmm. is, in essence... And they both were under the same pressures, under the same, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, if you want to talk about what the cold hard facts that matter, Mike was the best fighter from the Isle family on record because of what he achieved. And this is, yeah. me and you often have this debate to a degree. And on ability, you probably would go entirely on raw ability. But Mike was a for better opposition achieved more you know and mike mike was i think was definitely the best all-round fighter from yeah. the art family but there was something about tony which just had that wow factor well people like the bad boy you know what yeah, i mean they do they do I, like I, the bad boy and i think that's kind of where the romance uh that was kind of the romance of, of the time without question and and, and it, that's the thing isn't it you, you will always have a fascination the reason why this book is, is already done quite well in the in the first couple of days of release, and it's had a few high chart positions. Just because there is that in that undying fascination with dysfunction and thrills and spills, you know, and and, and crime and, and and destruction. I mean, uh, we need help with our own lives, so we see other people doing things and pulling through or falling th- or, or falling through. You know what I mean? And we kind of like compare ourselves to that and we're always looking for an answer because the answer is never really given to us. It's like parents don't parent anymore. So we have to find out through other people's ill experiences. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In some way, measuring up to that. I don't know. It's crazy. Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Oh, I'll I'll give you an example, Michael. I remember reading, yeah, um, I remember reading Joe Calzaghe's autobiography. And with the greatest respect to a fine fighter, and I I think Joe Calzaghe is, 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 is also a very affable lovely fellow too yes but the book doesn't really detail anything other than the fact that i started boxing at a young age my dad pushed me hard yeah and we achieved a lot i won everything as an amateur then i won everything as a pro and then i retired <laughs> i had trouble making weight a few times yeah. i had a few injuries yeah. once yeah. i built my diora light which yeah. i used to take after the weigh-in which got me in a bad mood but all ended well i beat everybody and then i retired thank you for reading good night um yeah and that is all you know so it doesn't have one 20th the kind of interest value of the, of the Ayala, Tony Ayala story and the Ayala family story, you know what I mean? So, yeah, we, we know these things sell, you know, and, and what that's why there's potential for a movie, um, or a documentary or a series. Yeah. Sylvester Stallone wanted to make the Tony Ayala Jr. story, he he made a movie called Lock Up in the late 80s, uh-huh. and he some of those scenes were filmed at Railway Prison in New Jersey, where Ayala was serving his sentence at the time. And he wanted, to, as a spin-off, having met Ayala and they, they, they spoke, they talked, 
he wanted to do the film and he supposedly Stallone was offering good money for the rights to that story. But Tony Ayala Jr. apparently refused based on the fact that it would have to end with him in prison. And he said, I'd rather be forgotten or, you know, than, than be remembered like that. So he didn't, supposedly he vetoed that idea. So, so he had, he had pride in, I guess when his desires kind of like came to the forefront, his, his, uh, pride or his his how he wanted to be seen took a backseat which obviously happens with addictions you forget about what's really important and you just decide on fulfilling the urge you're feeling right now right yeah um i think the thing with with um with with tony as well because an important character in the story is his uh, therapist who he met in Trenton prison for the first leg of his sentence. Mm -hmm. The director of psychology and psychiatry at Trenton prison was a guy called Brian Raditz who was, they established a bond and he, he got through and he, he supposedly uncovered the, the abuse that Tony Ayala Jr. had suffered as a youngster. He opened up to him and he confessed that to him and they concluded, see, Mike thinks they built a narrative. Mike doesn't believe it all. Mike, Mike says Tony was abused, but he knows who did it. And, and, we, and we reveal who it was in a book. We say who it was as far as Mike's. Wow. You know, Mike, Mike, I'm not going to, there's no yeah, way. No, 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 no. Don't, uh, I want to read. read it. I don't want to hear it. Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but the point being, just quickly, what Ayala said to a journalist about this whole thing, he said, rape is about anger and violence, right? He said, yes. I wanted to be loved. I didn't think I was capable of being loved. I didn't believe that. He said, I thought I'd trick my wife into marrying me. He wasn't actually married to her, by the way, but they were effectively married. Lisa Pires, who was absolutely gorgeous, incidentally. Yeah. But he um, he said, I didn't believe that she loved me. I thought I tricked her. He said, and I wanted to be loved by someone who didn't know me, who didn't know I was a boxer and didn't know I had money. That's what he he blamed the attack um, in 1982, stroke 1983 on, mm -hmm. um, because he wanted, he said, I know it's crazy, but that's the way I was feeling. So that was his version of events. Did Tony have any kids? No, no. Wow, hmm. he did. And, and but uh, Mike Ayala does. He has Mike. two daughters and one son. Yes, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And yeah. none of them are fighters. No, they're not. You know, his son Santino wanted to be a fighter, mm -hmm. and Mike because because he got um, it was called anaplastic large cell lymphoma at mm. a, a certain age, which made which left him less able to to pursue a ring career, amateur career even. So Mike vetoed it on those grounds because he thought he, he didn't have a clean bill of health for it. And apparently he said um, his son um, had a resentment for that because he, 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 he thought his dad was stopping him from boxing with the irony of that, you know, in the Isla family. But Mike was saying that, I think Mike asked the local commission not to not to card him because he said he shouldn't be boxing because 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 he's had this, you know, this condition and, and it's not safe for him to box so mike was quite felt quite strongly about that you know but that caused a, a rift between him and santino at the, at the time because because he the kid actually wanted to box you know that was a strange scenario yeah yeah is tony senior still alive today no he passed away in 2014 you know tony jr was still in prison when he passed away but he was allowed out for the funeral okay, okay. but he had to go back in for another nine days after that and mike was always nine days. ridiculous <laughs> Mike was like, why couldn't they just let him go? But they returned him back to Texas uh, State Prison for, for another nine days after he attended his father's funeral. Wow. So he he did part of his sentence in Rahway and then did another sentence in... It went like this. He did. He was at um, from 19... 
83 to 87, he was at Trenton. He was at Railway from 1987 to 1993. Mm-hmm. And from 1993 to 1999, he served the rest of it in Bayside Prison in Leeburg, New Jersey. Uh, okay. Um, is the mom still alive? The mother, Pauline, died last um it, it was it was uh february 2021 last year sorry 2022 last year uh, yeah i'm sorry i'm sorry yeah. that would have been, and did you get a chance no you didn't get a chance to speak to her obviously i didn't get a chance to speak to her no i mean mike told me she sounded like a really colorful character there's a few pictures yeah. of her as a young woman in the book and she looks absolutely yeah. Beautiful, stunning yeah and um in her later, she sounded very kind of colourful and opinionated. Mike said she was quite a handful in later years. They, they, it, 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 he, he was absolutely privileged to get to spend the last few years of his life looking after his mother with his wife Laura. But she sounded like she sounded like a handful and someone who was, you know, you, you always knew she was there. So it's, you know, it was just a, they were an interesting family, you know. I mean, I would like to have met the dad, who no doubt, regardless of the story with his own sons and what people might feel about that, and he, and he certainly later acknowledged he'd been too hard with his sons. He said, I pushed them too hard. And I think he said, I would have done it differently today when he looked at how certain things turned out. But mm-hmm. as a boxing man in San Antonio, he, he made it, he, he was a colossus, you know, he made a massive contribution. He trained a mm-hmm. bunch of uh, amateur champions. And also he, in the pros, he, he developed four world champions and Gabby Canizales, Jesse mm-hmm. Benavides, mm-hmm. Mar- Maribel Zarita and John Michael Johnson. You know, they were all, yeah. so he, he, he had a big body of work um, as a, as a coach in, in San Antonio and was a was just a major boxing figure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I distinctly remember, just to jump back to, to a second on, on Tony in, earlier in his career, I distinctly remember the first time I saw him, I think it was on NBC Sports World. Yeah. And, and I, it, I don't think it was Robbie Epps. It was somebody else before him. Um, but uh, <clears throat> but I remember, um, I remember him getting in the ring and I looked at him and I was like, this guy's junior middleweight and he's chubby like that. Like yeah. my mind couldn't get around it because every single fighter that I saw that wasn't a heavyweight, you know, you see Buster Mathis, you see these other yeah. guys and, you know, yeah. but, but when you see, when you see a professional boxer, that's not a heavyweight and he doesn't have abs and he is ripped and you know what I mean? You're yeah. like, what even, why? This doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Why? Can you believe? You okay. You said he looked, he looked kind of, uh, chubby and fleshy at junior middleweight, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you believe he won his first national title at 16, the Golden Gloves um, at middleweight, which is 165 back in those days, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was 165. So, you know, he was, he didn't, weight was always a bone of contention between him and his dad, you know, and dedication and road work and all the rest of it and diet. So he, he, he looked to me like he could have made a good welterweight. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's more or less like you have to say it's discipline. He, didn't like being disciplined and maybe his dad kind of felt like he couldn't discipline him any more than he did or have a level of experience yeah. more than he had. When you're, when you're not boxing above your natural weight division, let's say, and you're drinking and shooting heroin sometimes before fights as well, you must have a lot of talent to, 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 to walk through those junior middleweights that you did and become the WBA number one contender when yeah. you're not really, when you're not really bringing your A plus game, you know? Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's, Look at this for a second. Well, I'm talking about the A-plus game, well, quite possibly he's even more fearless because that – I don't know if the drug kind of kills any apprehension or – Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's a big help. <laughs> yeah, um, no doubt. It is. Don't get me wrong, he wouldn't, have been, he wouldn't have been high in all of those fights by any stretch. Yeah. He, he says there are three fights that he shot up before expressly, and they were – 
for any Ayala obsessives, they were Nicanor Camacho, uh -huh. um, Dario de Asa. And, and leave off the other. last one for the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll leave that for the book. There were three fights. He, there was three fights. He, 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 he says he. You know, see, there was one fight when they both topped the bill in San Antonio back yeah. in nineteen. I believe it was in 1981. Mike and Tony were double headers in San Antonio. Yeah. And they were staying at the house, which was at this point on St. Louis Avenue. Sorry. Um, it was Royston Avenue in on the south side of San Antonio. And they were waiting. They got a limo to go to the fights. You know, it was quite a big deal at home. The two brothers topping the bill. Mike had only recently started talking to his father again after a period of estrangement, which was quite constant with those two. And he said they were waiting to go to the fights. And he said um, Tony was taking forever in the bathroom. He said Tony just wouldn't come out the bathroom. It's like, what the hell are you doing in there? You know, and Mike said, I knew what was going on. He said, but um, but it wasn't my place to say it. So wow. he just let, and he said, but, and then when Tony finally came out, he said, my father was upset, but he didn't say anything to him. Nobody questioned him. He said, because Tony was the golden child. But he said, I would have called hell. I would have called hell for doing that and, and for, you know, for taking that yeah. long when it, when yeah. we were getting ready to go to the to the fights that night. Um, but he said Tony was a golden child and that was that. And that was what that was the night that he fought Nick and Camacho, looked yeah. substandard, blamed it on flu or a virus or whatever. Yeah. Um, and he, um, he, he later admitted he, he shot up at home the night before the fight. With, sorry, the night of the fight. Hmm. So, um, let me get this straight because I'm not very knowledgeable on drug culture and what have you. But the heroin's the one where they you tie the rubber thing around your arm and you put the needle in. You got the idea. You got you watched Sid and Nancy, didn't you? <laughs> I no, I watched um, Beretta. I think it was. Was it Beretta? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the heroin. That what you've just described there is the process when you inject any drug intravenously but heroin is the one most commonly administered in that way street drugs you know um yeah. and yeah i mean it, but you can smoke heroin as well you can you could they call it chasing yeah, okay. a dragon right you put it on silver okay. foil bake off foil yeah, and you yeah. put a lighter underneath it i can't believe we're doing a how-to guide here with class a drugs still you see what <laughs> level we've souped to you know this is what we've become this is what your career has become about you know, <laughs> people how to take drugs <laughs> yeah, you chase it. That, that's one way. You when people smoke heroin, okay, they they, they chase the dragon, as it were. Mm -hmm. But but most people who, I guess, most hardcore addicts start uh, mainlining it. They start banging it up, as they say, because it's a lot more effective and efficient. They don't lose any of it, and it, the, the high the high is more intense. And that's a, that, that's the one cooking it on the spoon and, and yeah, syringe. yeah, yeah. That's this wow. <laughs> cooking on the spoon. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I hear obviously nothing pretty from those stories, and um, and the fact that he's that he was able to continue fighting through that is, if that energy could have really been like brought to a, I, I don't know. Um, I would love to have seen his potential like really unfold, and that takes me to the point. Okay, so he was in. He was set to fight Davy Moore for the world title, right? Like they had yeah. the date and the time and everything. And then he was, yeah. then all of a sudden he got, you know, they came and they got him. He was yeah. in training when they got him. He wasn't in training. He was arrested on the night. It was like I say, he'd been out late with uh, Lisa. They'd gone to a party yeah. on, a, on a barge. You said on the night, meaning on the night, not the night of the fight. No, on the night of the, the rape. 
Yeah, the night of the rape. Okay. He was arrested in the small hours in the morning, walking shirtless and shoeless in the apartment complex where he lived and, and where the victim lived, you know, literally yeah. across the way. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, the, the Davy Moore fight was set for May, I believe. it. The, I don't believe it was a date. It was just for some weekend in May. He'd already signed the contract, and I know that much. Mm-hmm. And he was going to have a tune-up as well in, I believe it was January. He was looking at a tune-up against a guy called Leslie Sweet Lemonade Gardner. There's a nickname for you. There's an alias. He was a Kronk fighter, I believe. He was from Detroit in any case. And if, you, if you're if you from Detroit, then you've got to come out the Kronk, right? So he was, um, yeah, he, Leslie Sweet Lemonade Gardner was supposed to be his tune-up just to stay busy. Obviously, that didn't happen once once he got arrested. He was on bail for a little while, but then um, yeah. once he got um, convicted in April, April 21st, mm-hmm. 1983, mm-hmm. he was then, you know, remanded at Fasayat County Jail until he was sentenced on June the, June the 21st. Um, yeah. And that, sorry, June the thirteenth, just to be absolutely correct, and um, and that was that, you know. Then obviously he didn't see the light of day then for for sixteen years. But the interesting thing to me as well is that he came out to a hero's welcome, and he was he he signed a deal that was worth four hundred grand as soon as he came out, you know, um, to, for the next four comeback fights. And people tell me, I mean, Mike tells me he he pretty much got a quarter of a million up front for this deal. Yeah, Lester Bedford might be watching this, and he might say it wasn't that way. But the, he certainly earned two hundred grand for his first comeback fight against an undemand, relatively undemanding opponent um, yeah. for his first start in sixteen years. Yeah. So what I'm saying, Michael, is he he was still a big, big deal. He came back to a, a very yeah. emotional hero's welcome in the Freeman Coliseum that night, and he was getting six figure sums. He said, yeah. "This might sound arrogant." After the first fight, he said, "This might sound arrogant, but I'm not going to fight for twenty grand. I'm a six figure fighter. I'm creating interest. I'm attracting people." And it, and it was yeah. true. And yeah. I said to Mike, and I can't think of another boxer in history, Michael, who mm. could have gone away for that long, 16 years, for such a reprehensible reason and yeah. come out to those kind of opportunities and that kind of money. I, mm-hmm. I think it's unique in boxing history, that yeah. story. Yeah. And Mike, and when I asked Mike what he thinks it was, he said the city was in love with him. He, he, yeah. You know, it's yeah. it just the way yeah. it was. Well, I mean, everybody was talking. I mean, Tony Allo was the conversation. And it's and he was the conversation at junior middleweight and middleweight. If yeah. there was going to be a fight when when Tony Ayala was rated when he was in the top ten of the world, if you talked about the champion in either in either junior middleweight or middleweight when Hagler was champ, it was like what would he do against Hagler and what would he do yeah. against Sugar Ray and what about Tommy Hearns and everything was about Ayala being the up and coming. Now I knew Mugabe was around at that time too. And but thinking, Michael, you could have fought him, maybe if he'd have if he'd have played out his natural trajectory, you oh, might have fought him. Yeah, yeah, that's entirely yeah. plausible. Yeah. He could have won a junior middleweight title, or yeah. could have even unified. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then, after that, as a looking to launch himself in the middleweight division with Hagler in mind, he, he yes. could have fought you. But that yeah, is a very absolutely. plausible timeline. Yeah, I, I mean, I I didn't really get to the scene till like it was very short, like eighty six and eighty seven. Yeah. And and obviously, well, what do you think? What would have happened with Tony Ayala? Let's say he fights Davy Moore. What in your mind happens in that fight, and where does he go from there? I think he stops Davy Moore. I would give it in a similar time frame to the to, that Duran stopped him around seven eight rounds. Mm-hmm. I, but I suspect he'd have he would have messed up at some point anyway. Uh, I think he would have been one of those kind of you know uh, comet type. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, situation, he, he, you know, he wasn't going to be the, around for long. A shooting star, you know, 
But supposedly he, he did have a different temperament and didn't have, you know, the demons that he had. And when I say demons, he definitely had demons. I'm not going to be a bleeding heart and I'm not trying to excuse his crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to say, oh, it was all about the, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, overlook the victim or anything like that. But he, he had demons. He was a tortured soul. That, that, that's just seems beyond argument to me, having researched the situation very deeply. Yeah. Yeah. But um, had he not been that way, but see, this is the thing, Michael. This is a confession, all right? And I've said, and I've admitted this to Mike. I don't believe he'd have beaten Shaboy Leonard or Tommy Hearns or Roberto Duran, mm-hmm. and I certainly wouldn't have wouldn't have been optimistic against his chances with Marvin Hagler. I think he'd have beat yeah. a whole lot of junior middleweights and middleweights. But mm-hmm. I don't see the evidence to suggest. See, Lou Duva said he talked about Hagler, Duran, Hearns, and Leonard, and he said he'd have walked through all of them. He said, <laughs> "Forget which is, that is hyperbolic." Come on, man, that is hyperbolic. You know. And he said, you know, forget about, um, he said, forget about Muhammad Ali even. But this is, you'll love this one. He said, Rocky Marciano and Tony Ayala Jr. Nobody quite had it like they did. That was, that was Duva's kind of, you know, kind of overweight Italian perspective on it, on yeah, the whole situation, yeah. you know. Um, but, <laughs> but no, I don't, I don't think Ayala would have, could he have been an all-time great? Sure, maybe. I mean, so Mike McCallum is an all-time great. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think Mike McCallum would have beat most of those uh, fair four either. I think he could have beat Duran, you know, a, a junior middleweight. But yeah. I, uh, that's, a, that's, I a good, that's actually a good question because I'm not like I listen. I'm sure it's Muhammad Ali than Sugar Ray Leonard for me. But I'm they're not, your two favorite fighters ever, right? Yeah, I believe so. Same, yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. You two? All right. <laughs> of course, without question, without question. No. And when I was arguing for Robinson over Ali. In the, in the historical pound for pound debate, that uh-huh. doesn't mean that my affection is much no. more. That's why I allowed you to win that argument because I didn't have enough resistance. I, I thought I was gonna, I came into the fight feeling confident, but when I got there, my heart wasn't in it. That's why you won. Um, <laughs> the only reason, <laughs> listen, listen, we can the, the, the judges' scorecards are the judges' scorecards. I can't argue, you know what I mean? They said. They gave me the KO, I think, in KO in four. I know you're arguing the fight shouldn't have been stopped, but the results are the results, man. I can't do anything about that. I'm sorry. I could have continued, but I just wanted to see you, you know, have your mom in the sun. But anyway. You pulled him no mas. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah but um, so so let's say, so Tony beats Davey Moore. And I think that, Listen, I can't take anything away from Davey Moore. He has heart, and he is going to get off. He didn't really get off against Duran because, I mean, that was yeah. just savagery. And Duran is such an intrinsic, uh, like, he, he's his instincts and his uh, his abilities, like, on that night, I don't know. That was fantastic. It's, yeah, that was just an incredible performance. That was the resurrection of Roberto Duran, and that yeah. is one of my favorite performances to watch when yeah. you talk about one-sided beatdowns masterful you know it was poetic the savagery of that fight um, that was so savage i mean i couldn't even imagine what davy moore was experiencing at that time he comes in there he's in new york he's in his home back he's in his backyard and he his front yard and he's yeah. thinking and he's thinking yeah this is all for me and this is going to be my crowning glory i'm going to come in i'm going to whoop this old man who is really a lightweight and I'm going to come in and do Sugar Ray on him like he never experienced Sugar Ray before and all that. And from the opening bell, boy, and every time he got hit, when you get hit, it's exploded. Yeah, you know what happens. When you get hit, everything gets distorted. Sound gets distorted. You know what I mean? It's like a nightmare. It's like you see these demons screaming at you and all that. And yeah. you hear these things that, that aren't normal. Like, it's just you just can't make sense of it. 
but to the level he was getting hit and the, and the pain he was feeling. Like there comes a time, like after the adrenaline wears off, you start feeling distinct pain. And it's just the way it is. You know what I mean? The adrenaline doesn't stay with you from round one to round 15. At some point, the adrenaline goes, I'm empty. And so, that's, and that's, and that's what decides when a fighter quits or doesn't. When, you know what I mean? When you really feel it's unblanketed pain and that's all there is to it. Yeah. And then you find out a guy's pain threshold. I thought it was incredible, the pain threshold of Davey Moore, because he was getting hit with incredible body shots. And body shots yeah. are the most painful shots to get hit with. Yeah. He got thumbed in the eye. And I, but trust me, I know that one very well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, you talk with authority at this point. No <laughs> it's like someone took a thumb and pushed it to the back of your brain. It's just like the pain is just like on, on another level. And then you still have to fight, and then your mouth is bleeding, and then the crowd's going crazy. And, and there's this guy in front of you that's just looking at you like he's going to like just really cannibalize you. So, so that, to me, was just like, yeah. So for, I mean, Duran, yeah, he, he landed again, and he landed with authority. And, you know, uh, Duran was a three-to-one underdog then going into the fight that yeah, night yeah. and you know based on pretty sound reasoning to an extent because yeah. you know he'd lost to Benitez he was thought to be on the back nine as uh, to quote yeah, yeah. a rather eccentric but, 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 but Dave Moore only had 11 fights as well and he'd beaten True. like uh who do you have the silver uh assassin silver Charlie Weir from yeah. South Africa yeah. for the title he beat uh he defended against him he beat Takio um Murata like that. He, was, he was a Japanese guy. He got yeah. the opportunity and he, and he took it with both hands. But, yeah. you know, um, if, um, I do remember there was a, there was some fearless forecaster type guy who was well known in the American press circles. And he said, Duran is not going to beat more. I only wish I was as sure as about going to heaven or something like that, he said, <laughs> which, you know, resonated after the event. I think that version of Duran and Ayala would have had a would have had a fight for the ages. Yeah. I think if those two had met, because yeah. like I say he was he was supposed to meet Duran on November twentieth, nineteen eighty two. Then he got arrested in August for for breaking into a, a neighbor's house in San Antonio and, mm. and doing some kind of damage, ramsacking the place, some pressure mm. boards have described. Mm. He was so he said he was so drunk he thought he was in his own house. Uh I don't know. It wasn't a woman's house that has often been reported. It was a man yeah. called Jim Capontier whose house he went into for whatever reason. The guy didn't press charges in the end. He declined to press charges. Some people think he was threatened, but he says he just sympathised with the with yeah. the plight of the man who'd stumbled into his house drunk. He understood those kind of problems, he said, and no hard feelings. Yeah. Um, but that uh, put the Duran fight in question on November 20th, 1982. From there, while Tony was in rehab. He was ordered to go to rehab for a month in Orange, California, mm-hmm. um, as part of his, you know, they deferred sentence and told him to go to rehab. Um, and then in the meantime, Duran lost to Kirkman Lang in a bit of a sensation at Detroit's mm-hmm. Cobra Hall, which left the fight dead in the water. Consequently, Ayala fought Carlos um, Herrera. Herrera in a WBA final eliminator on November 20th, the day after he was supposed to fight Duran. And then, you know, the rest, he beat Herrera, you know, flattened him in three rounds. And then after that, New Year's Eve, and there you go. Youth, goodbye. Career, goodbye. Yeah. So, um, so at that point, he was still with his father, and he was still with Duva at that time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Duva was never involved in a second career, but he was. 
yeah, he was on board all the way, you know. I mean, so I guess Duva, Duva, Duva's cutoff point was the was the arrest for for the for the uh, the West Patterson assault and the subsequent conviction and sentencing. So thinking about it, there there must have been other um, writings on the wall for Duva with Tony that haven't been brought out. Like there there probably. I'm sure. I'm sure there must have been happenings or circumstances or bad things. Oh, that yeah, yeah. He said Duva said he eventually got tired of all that. You know, the trouble he would get into because he was always he was always getting into trouble, motoring related offences. You know, um, he drew. You know, he driven since he was a kid, and he and he mm -hmm. drove, he didn't he didn't have the greatest respect for for accepted standards of motoring decorum. You know, and road <laughs> safety and all the rest of it. So. Yeah. That was always an issue, but you know, journalists have said to me, uh, like John Whistler, who's probably the most prolific journalist on Ayala, who covered uh, boxing for the San Antonio Express News for many years. He said the justice system in San Antonio just looked the other way because he was a prodigy, you know. Yeah, sure. He so had a kind of different passport to a lot of ordinary people for a long time, you know. So the the, the kind of timeline of events uh, in terms of his criminal history is the, is the 1978 driving assault. Uh, then you, after that, you had. Um, the the burglary um, of the of the neighbor's house in San Antonio, a whole bunch of driving things. You know, by the time he got out, you know, he got shot in the shoulder in uh, two thousand one December, because after he lost the campus, he broke into another um, apartment oh, with women yeah. in it, um, and one of them shot him in the shoulder. I I explained the situation more fully in the book, obviously, but that was another thing, and he only got probation for that because he managed yeah. to. It was he, he was defended pretty well in that case, and it was managed. He knew the woman, uh, the, the young lady who was 18, who, who was a lodger in this particular uh, apartment uh, in San Antonio. And he, they knew each other from the gym. They'd been out to dinner before. He bought her a dress. That was, they managed to prove a certain degree of um, familiarity between the two of them. And he, as far as he was concerned, he was invited to the house at in the morning four in the morning wow. uh, they say no he walked in and you know he came in uninvited and blah 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 but he got shot in any case no no none of the women were harmed and the only person that was hurt in that particular case was Tony yeah. Hart but, yeah, yeah. but but the point is he was he just couldn't stay out of trouble you know I mean yeah. if, I, if I were him in the situation he was in I, th I don't think I'd ever enter a, another woman's apartment uninvited again for the rest of my life um, knowing he had second chances and golden opportunities even after even yeah. after the stigma of that, you know, so yeah. well, he, he I mean, couldn't stay out of trouble was the bottom line, you know, he, yeah. whatever it was. One of the saddest things I ever saw, because I'm not as, a, as attached to Tony's story as you are. Uh, obviously, you know a lot of things about it that I don't, that I'm going to find out in a book. But one of the saddest things I remember, only because, again, I wasn't familiar with Tony Allen's whole story and the other mishaps he had um was his loss to yuri boy campus yeah I, I mean i was cheering for him obviously i i didn't feel the pain of his victims that wasn't my thing at that time i just knew yeah. he was a fight story and i and i and i admired him. i liked him as a fighter i looked at him fight and i thought he had incredible ability yeah a little chubby but you know what i mean still he was he yeah was, he, was, he was an amazing fighter yeah. and, and so um I admired that ferocious, like he had that instinct. He had that instinct that certain fighters had, and and some of them looked it, and some of them were it. You know what I mean? Like like Shigori had that same kind of killer instinct when he got yeah. you hurt. He'll walk through fire to get you out the ring. I always admired that, and he had that. And, and he, uh, Sugar Ray was abused too. 
exactly. Yes, yes. So I guess you know that kind of fuel. Um, the kind of fuel is really helpful, but um, I, I guess I'm glad I wasn't a good finisher. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'd rather not be a good finisher. <laughs> if, that's if, what takes, that. if it comes <laughs> at that price, yeah. <laughs> right, come on, we'll go the distance. I'll take it easy this round. Yeah, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that when I saw him fight Yuri Boy Campus, that, that was one of the sad that to me that was I remember I was very sad with Ali and Holmes, and I was very sad with Camacho and Leonard. Yes, same. And, and 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 with this one here, that that kind of like it did weird things to me. I know he was away for a long period of time, but to see him when he came back, that's the first time I'd seen him, and I'm looking at it, and he wasn't doing anything like Tony Allen, and he was just and and Yuri Boy Campus, he had lost to many fighters by that. He'd lost time. to Obakar, Felix yeah. Trader, yeah, 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 and and um and and also De La Hoya as well, right? Fernando Vargas. Yeah, Fernando oh. Vargas. Yeah, a lot of guys. So, yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh, that, that really, um, I, I remember that left a real bit of taste in my mouth. And... Well, what, what you see then, when, when, he, uh, when his father pulls him out at the end of the eighth round, he's, uh, he starts sobbing uncontrollably. You know, he, he, uh, he really is, you know, wails of anguish coming yeah. from the Ayala corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, hugs him in them tree trunk arms and says, it's okay. And you can hear Tony Arda Jr. say, I'm sorry. And his dad says, sorry for what? Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's <laughs> what it is. But he he had not lost since he was eight years old. You know, he had not, he's credited with 140 amateur fights. Yeah. Of which he won 132. And he not and he hadn't lost. So those eight losses were all in the peewee. Uh, wow. stages, you know. <laughs> When he yeah. he'd never lost when he was age was recorded in double digits at all, so he didn't know what it felt like. And I think if he'd have won that fight, his next fight was going to be something really big. They were hoping to get it on HBO because it was on ESPN two. That fight that was mm -hmm. the first time mm -hmm. he got national television exposure. Mm -hmm. You know, in the campus fight in in his comeback, mm -hmm. and yeah. um, you know that was this was the master plan, and it was going to be a Rocky Balboa esque comeback and then some. You know, yeah, yeah, and it was starting to look real. Um, but obviously, Kempas, you know, spoiled the party. I don't think that was a, that was the smartest of matches they could made. They could have made thinking about it, you know. But um, but that was his whole world, and his whole world really did collapse like a castle built on sand. After that, you know, it was mm. after that a few months later he was arrested in the apartment where he got shot in the shoulder, and there was no all the, as Lester Bedford said at the time. He said, "I think the feel good part of this story is over." He said after that particular incident, you know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's that's an exciting story. I can't. I I'm really looking forward to reading the book. And thank you so much for um, for uh, like getting it done from writing and getting it done with Mike Ayala, which is yeah. you know. And I can't thank Mike Ayala enough. That's for, the truth. This is the thing, right, Silk? He was so committed because he was very evasive at first. Mm -hmm. When I would message him, he he come back to me politely, and we talk for it. Then he goes silent for you know for months actually. 
Mm-hmm. But once I got, once we bonded, we bonded, and that was that. Because I said, "Listen, any chance we could talk about this again?" We mentioned we talked about it a few months ago, and he said, "Sure." That's, we, we had a video call on Facebook while he was driving, you know, doing his work as an air conditioning tech, you know, going to the next yeah. job. And he's on the freeway, and we're talking, and um, we had a reasonable conversation for about half an hour, and then I said to him, "Okay, we're going to give this a go, right?" Um, and I said can you commit to two phone calls a week, two hours a week? And he went, yeah, yeah sure. And I thought, does he really mean that though? Because yeah. people say stuff all the time. Yes, I thought, yes, am yes. I going to have to be chasing him? He was so damn committed. I yeah. couldn't get rid of Mike. He would be messaging <laughs> me because obviously we liked each other. And, and yeah. then, you know, he would message me saying, hey, what's going on? Are we talking today? And it's mm-hmm. like, well, we're not really supposed to be talking till Wednesday. But, you know, because um, yeah. I had stuff I wanted to write and offload. I had all this stuff on tape. And I yeah. wanted to transcribe some of it before I got more stuff in my head. You know, mm-hmm. so I had a pace in mind. He'd be like, are we talking today? And I'd be like, well, if you want to talk today, we can talk. And in the end, <laughs> we were just talking all the time. And he'd call me when it was 5 a.m. where he was. And he'd say, hey, I just got another piece of the puzzle. I just remembered something. <laughs> and, you know, to go from that yeah. when we started in August to this yeah. sorry i'm still yeah. getting used to the bloody camera yeah. that is there forever now that is there for posterity it's yeah. not slim volume that will live forever and yeah. and it's in it it's all collected in one place the good the bad the ugly and it's yeah. in a with an overall sensitivity that mike can live with and yeah. that he actually likes you know and um he told me a friend of his wife's read it uh this week and said she was blaming his wife saying I didn't get to sleep till 1 a.m. and I was late for work and it's your fault because I was reading that damn book. I couldn't <laughs> you know, and that, that is fantastic to me because he said she's not a sports fan, she's not a yeah. boxing fan. Yeah. And I know Mike was really worried about people in his local and in, and his and in his peer group reading it. He was mm. he would say to me some nights, Do you know? He said, If I don't play this right, I could lose everything I have. I could really mess this yeah. up, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I'm yeah. so glad that that he likes the result that and he yeah. and happy with it and he feels it was a worthwhile project you know because because yeah. as i say he was so committed and i couldn't have done it without him yeah. and he just he was just like a surgeon on it until we got to the end you know what i mean he was yeah. he, he was never out of commission he was available to be taught you know any time yeah. day or night and we so went last through- question before before i know i know we got to kick off soon but last question what did it what did telling the ala story do for you I, it's weird. I feel this big sense of achievement much more than the other books. I've done four yeah. books before this. Yes. I was called to be Benitez's first biographer, and that that one's done well. And yeah. I had feedback from it, and I and I look back on it and flick through it sometimes, and I think, yeah, that was wasn't a bad job. But this feels like something like mm-hmm. I had this thing about being the first person to to author an Ayala project, whether it was a yeah. movie, you know, a script or 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 a book, you know, a biography. Yeah. And now I've done it, you know, and yeah, I was talking about this in 2009. One of my best friends in life and on social media, John Doyle, mm-hmm. uh, he we, we we were we first started talking over that. He was six, he had a scrapbook, an Ayala scrapbook, and he was sending me stuff because he, he knew I was interested in the book. This was 2009, yeah. and and uh, he was uh, emailing me stuff, and we said, Yeah, it'd be good to get it. And I always said the title would be El Torito, which is, I guess, that was yeah. kind of a no brainer. So I just I feel a big sense of closure myself. You know, for Mike, it's a different kind of closure, you know, because he was emotionally yeah. attached to it, and there's a lot of there's also a lot of trauma and a lot of sadness and regret. It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. No story. That's why he said sometimes he needed to let it die, and he just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was an acid test for me and him, for the friendship between us, because I said, "Listen, that's fine, Mike. 
straight away. I said, don't worry, you know, that if you don't want to do it, we abandon it right now. And then he said, OK, thanks, man. You, you know, I really appreciate that. Then in the next day, he said, listen, let's give it another go. And mm -hmm. I constantly say to him, Mike, I promise you, you will never lose control of this project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will never suddenly break away and be like, OK, I've got what I need now. Mm -hmm. And anything you don't want in there gets changed. And if you want to withdraw it, I said, I'm perfectly prepared to waste a year of my life on this only for you to change your mind. I'm ready for that. And I think, <laughs> and I meant it. So we, I think that was, that was enough for him. And then, uh, yeah, I'm just re it's, it's been such a fantastic journey, honestly. And, and to yeah. go and stay with him for a week in San Antonio was wonderful as well. Mm -hmm. And to train with him. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel really, I do feel really good about it, to be honest with you. Um, regardless of, ha of how well the book does, it, it's been, yeah. it's been my favorite um, yeah. literary project so far. And do you relate, can you relate any of your experiences to Tony's and Mike's? Well, the heroin, I mean, so, uh, that's one thing that I think me and Mike bonded over was the fact we obviously both done heroin. We both walked on the wrong side of the tracks and, been, you know, both been arrested and, and, and got up to, you know, school doggery and all the rest of it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't sympathise with the, I can't empathise with, sorry, with the uh, pushy father because I said, my, my parent, my mum hated boxing, didn't want me to box. My stepfather didn't, wasn't overly fond of me a lot of the time and, and didn't like boxing either, you know, so that was a double whammy. Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, to, I actually said to Mike, you know what, I think I'd have loved a father like Tony Ayala Jr. Sorry, <laughs> like Tony, sorry, like Tony Ayala Sr. Yeah. I'd have loved yeah. a father like that. Yeah, and my, and I, my, my father would love to have trained you, you know, and that was <laughs> yeah. kind of cool and surreal. But um, I imagine, oh, by the way, in the reality, you probably wouldn't feel that way when, when you've got that kind of pushy oh, Patreon thing. I mean, yeah. probably isn't as much fun as I'd have thought it was. Yeah, no, but, um, but no, I mean, I think that was the thing, you know, that was the thing for Mike as well. He said to me, did you box? And I said, I had a few amateur fights, yeah. And I said, if you're curious, I had a little bit of footage. Oh. And when I showed him uh, some clips of the, of the fight ahead in New York at Gleason's he said he liked you know he was impressed he said I, I'm being very honest he said but you're a good technical boxer so yeah. I think it was important to him he wasn't just talking to some journalist Johnny sure. come lately figure yeah, yeah. yeah. Due to agree. and the fact that I knew what it was like to to to, to, to get strung out on heroin was a bonus I guess yeah 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 when you have common ground it always helps make you know the, that bind stronger yeah and um yeah, that's a miraculous. It's an incredible story. And I'm looking forward to you doing, okay, so your next one, can I pick somebody who you should do next? You go ahead. I'm, I'm looking for, you know, for suggestions. Go. Matthew Saad Muhammad. No, nah, I can't do that because Tris Dixon, former editor of Boxing News, has just done it, literally. He's literally just put a book out last No year. way. Honestly, you should get that. Oh, I'll, you know, um, yeah, I'll send you the link later. It's, um... Okay. Also, or less, you know what? Because I, I hear you're coming to England. Yeah, that, oh, you heard through the grapevine, huh? <laughs> I heard through, through, through the, yeah, the only person I could have heard it from, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm coming to, I'm coming to Liverpool. I, I, um, I'm bringing my mom to Liverpool. Uh, it's just going to be that, you know, that trip and with family and just. Are you going to get down to London? I'm sorry. You're going to come to London as well. I, I believe we may. Ha I may have to stop through. I'm coming through from the states, and my mom's coming through Canada, and we're going to meet there. I think we're going to go to. I have to talk to the uh, travel agent and find out exactly what it is, because maybe on my way back out, I could stop in London for a day. That would be brilliant. You know, I think it's just. Yeah. Uh, it, it would seem like um. It would seem like a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it would be cool. 
We, we've never even shook hands before. We haven't, you know, in that sense, wrong. And also, we could maybe, depending on the dates, we could maybe do a show where we're literally physically in the same place. That would be, a, which I did that with my cool. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. That'd be amazing. All right. So now I'll, uh, I'll make that a point of discussion. And I'll let you know exactly when I'm coming in. Okay. So um, we'll be back next week where we will talk about some more topical boxing events. There is um, a, a world featherweight title fight taking place in Nottingham in England next week. You've got Lee Wood versus the danger man, Mauricio Lara. We will take a look at that situation, which will have already happened by the time we next speak in these split screens. In the meantime, thanks those of you who tuned in. We, as I say, uh, we are brought to you exclusively by Ace Podcast Nation and Simon Willis, without whom we couldn't do this. No, thank you, Simon, and thank you, Ben, for for doing the book and for um, and for the conversation. It was a good time. Thank One you. One more plug: it's available on Amazon in paperback, hardcover. El Torito. Yeah, the and our formats as well. It's priced at ten ninety nine in the UK. Which translates to about thirteen and a half bucks, I believe, in the United States. Yeah, it's a steal. It's a okay. steal. I'm going to get it. Okay, you won't regret it. No. Nope. Right. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.